Good evening. My name is Matt Moseson, and I have the privilege of reading Mark chapter 9, verses 42 through 50. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. Well, once again, good evening and welcome to Disciples Church. It is so good to see all of you. Good to be with you this evening. My name is Jonathan Mosher, and it's my uh, privilege to be able to look at the Word with you uh, tonight. And so turn in your Bibles, if you're not already there, to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. One of the joys of having sons, and I have two, they're ages four and six, one of the joys of having sons is seeing them as they grow older and grow into different stages become enamored with things that I love. So from as early as I can remember, I loved the Star Wars franchise and loved everything about that. And my, my oldest son, Leo, from the time that he was about two years old, began to watch the Star Wars movies. And I don't know if that was too early to introduce him to it or, to it or not, um, but he loved them from, from the first moment. And so now, Friday nights at our home are reserved for the viewing of the Mandalorian series on Disney+, Plus, which is all set in the Star Wars universe. And as a family, we just love that together. And so as they've grown older, to see them grow into new stages where they dive into new things and they discover for themselves things that I love is just so fun as a dad. And one of the things that my boys are just getting into um, pretty seriously right now is Legos. Now, I love Legos for a lot of reasons, and I spent countless hours as a kid building, building different sets and being creative and trying to do all of those different things. And my sons are now in that same uh, zone. They love trying to build what's on the box, but what they love even more than that is after they've built it, taking it apart and creating new things all on their own. But as any parent knows, Legos are a double-edged sword. Because when you have Legos in the house, you are under the constant fear and the scourge of the unseen Lego. And so inevitably, as, uh, as the evening progresses, no matter how, how many pains you have taken to make sure that all the Legos are picked up off the floor, at some point in the middle of the night, one of your kids is going to wake up and you're going to have to address them. And so you walk out and you walk through the living room and no matter how carefully you search the ground to make sure that all the Legos were picked up, at some point your foot is going to land on the spiked object. It's a mathematical certainty. It seems to break the laws of the universe that you could spend so much time tediously picking up all these pieces and still land on one. And as if that's not enough, you then have to stifle your cries because it's in the middle of the night and you don't want to further rouse the, ki rouse the kids from their slumber. But all of that pain and all the stumbling that comes from stepping on something that's, that's hidden could have been avoided with just a little bit of light. And through Jesus' teaching in this passage, we're reminded that as God's Word is made alive in us, as the Holy Spirit 
ignites the truth of God's Word in our hearts and illuminates what ultimately was dark in our hearts prior to knowing Christ, that that Word becomes a light on the stumbling blocks of our life. It reveals both the ways that we might cause others to stumble and to sin, and it reveals as well, and equally as importantly, it reveals the pitfalls in our own heart, in our own experience, in our own presumptions that lie in wait for our bleary-eyed shuffle in moments of forgotten darkness. And the text that Matt read for us this evening is given within the context of what's known as the Great Discipleship Discourse, which runs from Mark chapter 8, verse 31, all the way through chapter 10, verse 52. And in those chapters, what you see is Jesus' prescription, His own teaching for how it is that we are intended to follow Him. And that begins with Peter's confession. If you'll remember back to that passage, Jesus is having the conversation, and He says to Peter, who do people say that I am? And And Peter responds, well, some say that you're Elijah or Moses, that you're one of the prophets, that you're a great teacher, as as if you're one of the great teachers of old. And Jesus says, but who do you say, Peter, that I am? And Peter responds, you are the Christ. And from there, we see the discipleship of the disciples begin to play out as they witness the transfiguration and ultimately the disciples' discussion about who is going to be greatest in the kingdom. And here in this moment, Jesus is demonstrating that the way to greatness is found in the radical humility of the ordinary Christian life. That's the context that surrounds the Scripture that Matt read for us this evening. And here in this moment, Jesus shifts to another sobering motive for the Christian life, the reality of hell. Now, whenever Jesus' teaching causes us to become uncomfortable, we need to pay attention because there's something in our soul that is waving up a red flag trying to draw our attention to some area of our heart or some area of our belief that has not fully yet been been transformed by the teaching of Jesus Christ. Because most often when we experience spiritual discomfort through the reading of God's Word, it's a sign that we either do not trust or have lost sight of God's goodness. And that sentiment is doubly true when we talk about the reality of hell. Now, right at the outset, there's something you need to notice about this passage, because eagle-eyed readers will have noticed that in your bulletin, and likely in your Bible as well, verses 44 and 46 are missing. And so if you look at your Bibles, if you have a modern translation in particular, uh, here at Disciples Church, we generally preach from the English Standard Version, and if that is your translation of choice, you'll notice that verses 44 and 46 are missing. And both of those verses historically have been transcribed as the following, where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. So for some of you, those verses will appear in parentheses or in italics. For others, they may be in a footnote. But most likely, if you're using a modern translation, both of those verses are missing. And the reason that verses 44 and 46 are missing is that they do not appear in the oldest Greek manuscripts. In the roughly 5,000 manuscripts from which our modern Bible is drawn, verses 44 and 46 do not include them. But And some of the older translations, the King James Version in particular, verses 44 and 46 were included. What most likely happened is that a scribe writing down these verses wanted to emphasize the truth of this passage 
and inserted that repetitive phrase in both instances. And so in our modern translations, out of a desire to be faithful to those original texts, they have actually removed them. Now, I want you to understand something because these are the kinds of things that can be really distracting for Christians. Understand that the removal of verses 44 and 46 does not change the meaning of this text at all. And the reason it doesn't change the meaning of this text is because verse 48 says virtually the same thing that verses 44 and 46 would have said. But because the numbering of our Bibles is a human construction, in other words, it's not inspired by the Holy Spirit, it's something that that people have added to make our Bible easier to navigate, the translators of our modern translations wanted to be true to the original manuscripts while not renumbering all the verses that followed. Does all of that make sense? Clear as mud, all right? So I wanted to give you that explanation because it's one of those things that can jump out and create questions in your heart. But here's, here's the point. The lesson of this text is the same. And it was summed up quite effectively by the Puritan John Owen when he said this phrase, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. There is a true spiritual war going on for your heart. In a very real sense, there is a spiritual battle taking place all around you. Satan is trying to take every opportunity he can to throw up roadblocks in your walk with Jesus Christ, and the outcome of that war will have eternal consequences. I want you to look first at verse 42. Here's what it says. Whoever causes one of these little ones, remember Jesus has just spoken about the importance of the role of children and servants in the kingdom, and he says this. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And that phrase, little one, is a colloquialism. It's referencing all of those who had put their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ, from the most basic and the youngest child to the most educated, uh, to the most educated scribe or Pharisee that had placed their trust in Jesus Christ. It included all of those people. It includes as well you and I reading this text 2,000 years later. It's everyone who has expressed faith in Jesus Christ. That's you and that's me. And here's what he, here's what he says. He says, it would be better for you to take a millstone The idea is a giant round stone that would have stood about yay big and it had a hole in the center through which a chain would be run tied around a donkey and a donkey would begin to pull that mill round and round over grain in order to break it up. It was a very heavy, a heavy duty piece of farm equipment. And Jesus says it would be better for you to have that placed around your neck like a necklace and to jump into the sea than it would be for you to lead astray one of these little ones who believes in me. In other words, he's saying, if you cause someone to shipwreck their faith, there is eternal consequences to something so serious. Jesus is quite literally saying, it would be better for you to die before your time than to suffer eternal consequences of leading someone into spiritual ruin. See, the truth is that all of us have much more influence on the people around us than we often recognize. 
And it's easy to see in certain scenarios, you think about the relationship between a father and a mother and their children, you can, ima- you can imagine and you can picture how, how impactful that relationship is. But do you understand that if you claim the name of Jesus Christ, the manner and the way in which you live your life is acting as a bullhorn, a megaphone for what you claim to believe about God, about sin, and about what we value? that your life communicates a message, that your words communicate a message, and that what you claim to believe about God is either going to be supported or undone by the manner of lifestyle in which you live. And Jesus here is going to use three different pictures to illustrate the importance of this idea. Jesus here actually shifts from cautioning, of, uh, a creati- uh, from cautioning about how you might cause someone else to stumble to the sins over which you yourself might stumble. These are the Legos in the darkness that we need to have light shown on so that we can avoid them. And look how he describes them beginning in verse 43. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now Jesus is making an argument here with hyperbole. He's not literally suggesting that this is the methodology that we, that we should employ in order to avoid sin. We know that for obvious reasons, right? The Old Testament had several passages, the passages that specifically uh, forbade self-mutilation, and, and cutting off your hand practically certainly wouldn't remove the sinful heart behind your actions. Paul's going to write extensively about the fact that your heart and the position of your heart, the attitude of your heart, the affections of your heart are far more important to your life than your, your external actions. But the message here remains clear. It would be better to lose the things that you value most in this life than to lose your soul to hell. Now, our primary purpose this evening is not to have an excursus on hell. That's actually not the primary point of this passage, but we do need to ask this question. What is it about hell that requires us to take it so seriously? And we find the answer to that in this passage and in others. The word that's translated hell in our Bibles is the Greek word Gehenna. We find it here in Mark 9. We find it in Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 10. We find it as well in Luke chapter 12. And Gehenna referenced a specific geographical place. It was a, a valley that was set down below the south of Jerusalem. And historically, Gehenna had all kinds of significance for the Jewish people. Kings Ahaz and Manasseh were known to have sacrificed humans at this particular point to the god, uh, to the god Molech. King Josiah, in an effort to destroy the, the heritage and the history that Ahaz and Manasseh had established, decided to make this valley a dumping ground and a burn pile for the trash of the city. Later points in the Old Testament, we find that, that, that this whole region was cursed by the prophets. And so what you would find if you went there is this valley that was serving as a burn pile for Jerusalem is you would find all of the trash of the city literally set on fire, a fire that was nearly continually burning. And as you can imagine, as with any burn pile or with any dump site, you can imagine that the worms in that region were having a feast. 
They were going after the trash. There was constant disintegration. There was constant refuse. And so this whole region, this area called Gehenna, became a symbol of external, or rather of eternal judgment. And what Jesus is saying in this passage and in others is that there is a true Gehenna, a hell, where not only physical things are burned, but where the soul itself experiences eternal torment. Now listen, this is where many Christians have struggled. And it's an area where we tend to struggle as well. This whole idea of hell, the idea that there is a literal place of eternal torment, it is unsettling, it's disturbing, it's uncomfortable, it's objectionable on its face. And particularly in a culture like ours, though certainly not exclusively in a culture like ours, there's all kinds of pushback to this idea because it's incredibly unpopular to claim the exclusivity of Jesus Christ, to claim that there is a literal hell and that there is only one way of salvation in the person of Jesus Christ. That's unpopular, to say the least. And so all sorts of nominal Christian groups have altered the message of the Bible regarding hell in an attempt to make God himself more palatable. And the questions that they're beginning to ask is, why do we have to focus on the idea of hell? Isn't the idea of God's love enough? If we emphasize the beauty of God's love and the wonder of God's love and his grace and his mercy and his care and his provision and his his love for his people, isn't that enough? Why do we have to talk about hell? Why can't we just emphasize the good things about God? But do you understand that God has not given us the option to, dev- to define his nature for ourselves? God is a self-existing and morally perfect being. You understand that God has no creator. When we try to define who God is, we have to use very difficult, odd terms because he's unlike anything or anyone that has ever existed. He is pre-eternal, pre-existing, which means he has no beginning. He was not created of something else. And listen, if you want to boggle your own mind, just spend a few minutes thinking about that. The idea that God had no creation point, that you could go back a million years, a billion years, a trillion years, and God is still there. That he has no beginning and he has no end. He is self-existent. And on top of that, he is morally perfect, meaning that true morality by its essence is defined by his nature. So follow this logic then. To deny what Jesus says about the reality of hell is to strip away the very nature of God himself. You're taking what God has delivered to us in his word and how he's described himself and his care for things like holiness and purity and righteousness and what you have declared when you strip hell out of the Bible is you've declared of God this part of who you are is unnecessary. We can do without it. It's objectionable. It's uncomfortable. We don't really understand it. So we're just going to ditch it altogether. But do you understand that it is a moral necessity for God to punish sin? Do you understand that God himself would cease to be the God that he has declared himself to be if there was no punishment for sin? And do you understand that ultimately it's his love that drives that? 
that if God didn't love, if he didn't care about his own nature and his own character, if he didn't care about humanity enough to send Jesus Christ to die on the cross on our behalf, do you understand that he would not actually be loving? That the combination of his love and his holiness demanded that there be a sacrifice, a payment, a penalty for sin itself. And for us to claim, for anyone to claim that they love God while rejecting the parts of his character that we find difficult, it's akin to a wife telling her husband that she loves him but that she wishes he was a fundamentally different person than he is. And when we try to soften the message of the Bible by denying the reality of hell, we have given false hope and assurances to people who remain desperately in need of a Savior. And by extension, we have made a mockery of the death of Christ itself. See, when you remove the bad news of hell, according to one commentator, you gut the significance of the sacrifice of Christ and the good news of heaven. Do you understand that the strongest words in the Bible concerning hell comes from the lips of one who died so that we wouldn't have to go there? And Jesus is saying in this moment, it would be better for you to experience the temporary suffering of self-mutilation and avoid sin than to indulge yourself in sin at the cost of your own soul. So in order to take all of this seriously, the eternal effects of sin and the rejection of God, what we are told is you must cut it off. That according to one commentator, you must use unsparingly spiritual surgery to cut away those things that draw us into sin. And look at the categories as he gives them. There are three of them, and we're going to go through them quickly. Here's what he says. First, he says, if your hand offends you. And that's interesting language, because when he's talking about your hand, he's saying this is symbolic of all of the things that you might do. Our minds drift back to Exodus chapter 20 and the Ten Commandments when God says, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal. These are the actions in which we partake, the pursuits of our heart that play themselves out through physical action. Secondly, he says, your feet, if your foot offends you, cut it off. It's symbolic of all the places that you go. And this is an idea that we find scattered all throughout the Old Testament. Psalm chapter 1, verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. It's the idea that where you stand, where you go, both literally and figuratively, affects the outcome of who you are in your character, in your nature before God. It's what the author of Proverbs chapter 7 Intended when he wrote in verse 21, talking about the adulterous woman, with much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. Listen to this language. All at once he follows her, as an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast, till an arrow pierces its liver, as a bird rushes into a snare. He does not know that it will cost him his life. But the places in which you go are an outpouring of the heart that is within you. And according to Proverbs, the willingness to follow the deep, dark desires of your heart 
in action and walking to a particular place, in this case, the, the house of the adulterous woman, it costs you your very life. He's saying, do not put yourself in a position to be overtaken by sin. And finally, most interestingly, at least to me, probably most applicable for the day and age in which we live, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. So much of the sin in which we indulge enters through our eyes. This leads to the prayer of David in Psalm chapter 101, verse 3, where he says, I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. I hate the work of those who fall away. I shall, excuse me, it shall not cling to me. And notice the progression. I want you to see this. He says, I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. And if you backtrack that, if you play it backwards, here's what he's saying. If you indulge in things visually, if you allow those things into your eyes, it has an immediate and direct action on your heart and ultimately in your actions. And David says, I will not even look at sinful things so that those things may not get a grip on me and ultimately replace my very affections. And again, with Exodus chapter 20, verse 17 in the Ten Commandments, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. So what are the implications of the instruction to pluck out our eyes if they cause us to stumble? It might mean that if you can't handle being alone with your smartphone because of the images that lie just a click away, what would it look like to eliminate your access or build safeguards around that? Using Exodus 20, verse 17 as an example, if you can't handle following an Instagram account because it makes you dissatisfied with the home or the clothing that God has provided for you, unfollow that account. And we could have a broader conversation about social media at large about the effect, the impact that it has on our hearts, the ability that it has to stir our affections, the ability that it has to stir our anger, the ability that it has to create jealousy or to create lust or to create opportunity. You can apply these ideas to any area of your life. So now listen, this isn't about legalistic pursuits. And putting precautions, guards up into your life won't necessarily change the orientation of your heart. But Jesus is making it clear that to create an avenue by which you can indulge in sin is a dangerous game. So the question we ought to ask ourselves after reading this is what strategic safeguards do you need to put in place in order to protect the integrity of your heart? Because Jesus makes it clear that there are two options that lay in front of you. The kingdom of God or the reality of hell. Your very soul is at stake. Your eternity, Jesus says, is on the line. And what in this life can even compare with the value of your own soul? So even as I say that, what does that mean? 
I mean, after all, if you're a true believer in Jesus Christ, we know that you cannot lose your salvation. So John chapter 6, verse 37 says it this way, all that the Father give me, this is Jesus speaking, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. John chapter 10, verse 28, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So why is Jesus then suggesting, if our eternal security is set in him, why is he then suggesting that your very soul is at stake? Well, notice the language of verses 43, 45, and 47. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. Verse 45, it is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. Verse 47, it is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell. He, He is not suggesting that any one sin will cut you off from eternal life, but he's saying that no one who knows Jesus Christ who's experienced his rescuing grace and his sacrificial love can go on unabated in a pattern of unrepentant sin. And sanctification, which is the progression of victory over sin in our life, becoming more and more like Jesus Christ, gives evidence to the fact that we do know him. So William Hendrickson in his commentary on this passage said it this way, or rather in his commentary on Romans said it this way, when a person no longer feels at home in sin, he can be sure of the fact that he has been freed from the guilt of sin and that even the power which sin has been wielding over him is on the way out. So the question is, do you feel at home in sin? In other words, you can take it as a sign of the Holy Spirit's work and presence in your life when sin feels like a foreign intrusion rather than a familiar indulgence. But if you sit here claiming the name of Jesus Christ and hearing the preaching of God's word and singing songs about his grace and upon leaving can, drive, can dive rather headlong into your sin of choice without missing a beat, you have no such assurance of your own salvation. Sin is still home. So here's then the question, what does this all mean? If continued unrepentant indulgence in sin is a warning that I may not even know Christ, and if sinlessness is not attainable in this life, according to Romans 7, then how do I know where I stand with Jesus? And I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles, if you have them, to Hebrews chapter 12. And I'd like you to actually see this if you have your Bibles in front of you, because I think it'll answer a lot of the questions about Mark chapter 9. Here's what what the author of Hebrews writes in chapter 12, beginning in verse 6. Listen to these words if you don't have your Bible. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Verse 9. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, speaking of our earthly fathers. But he, that is God, disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. 
So the author of Hebrews gives us a metaphor here. He says, if you know God, you will be treated as a child. And part of that knowing God is discipline. And the, word, the, Greek word, the root of the Greek word for discipline in this text is the Greek word pedia. It's where we get our word pediatrics. It has to do with how a good father disciplines a child. See, a good parent disciplines his child for wrongdoing, not to pay them back for their wrongdoing, but to shape their character. The motivation is not primarily punitive, it's formative. Now notice what he says in Hebrews 12, verse 10, for they that are earthly fathers disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good. Why? That we may share his holiness. See, this is the contrast between a good but broken intention of an earthly father and the perfect intention of the heavenly father. See, some parents, myself included, discipline out of self-consciousness or comparison. We're afraid of what other people will think when they see, when they see your children, so, so they discipline to demonstrate their sincerity. Some parents discipline out of anger, trying to pay their child back for their wrongdoing. Some parents discipline out of frustration. They don't know what else to do. But God is a perfect, loving Father who always disciplines for the good of His children. Now notice then what He says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. Here's what he's saying. We've all seen examples uh, of kids who get their way and are never challenged. They become self-indulgent and they become entitled. And likewise, we've all seen examples of what happens to a child who is disciplined too harshly. They're either crushed and insecure or they swing the pendulum as far as they can the other way and they run headlong into pleasure-seeking as a means of self-medicating for their past. But here's the amazing and incredible thing about the fatherhood of God. His discipline is never so hard as to crush you, and it is never so soft as to allow you to continue to walk down the wrong path. So why am I talking at all about discipline? Why is this important? Well, of course, it corrects your path, it leads you to holiness, it instills a sense of morality, but more than that, it proves your identity. Look at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he adopts, who he brings in. Verse 8. If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. See, the hope for the believer is not in our own ability to be perfect, nor is our hope that that in running headlong into sin, without any pang of conscience, without any guilt rising up within us, that we can somehow take advantage of God's grace and continue to sin unabated. No, the hope for the believer is in the discipline of God. It's in the promise that if you belong to him, he will discipline and look then how this all plays out and connects for us back in Mark chapter 9, verse 49 and 50. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? 
That's a lot of salt in one verse. And what in the world is Jesus even talking about here? And I'll tell you honestly, if you start to read commentaries, one thing that you'll find out about this verse is nearly every commentator comments on how difficult this passage is to understand. But here's my best shot at it. What is he actually meaning when he talks about it here? He has transitioned from the fire of hell to the idea that everyone will be salted. Salt in this context is always referenced as a preservative. It's not primarily there for flavor in ancient times, but salt is what you would use to preserve food in order to keep it from spoiling before you had refrigeration. And in the Christian context, it is used with the very same idea that salt is an emblem of the fact that we are fighting against the corruption of the soul. When it's used in Scripture, it's describing the way that Christians interact with the world. Jesus is saying this to his followers. He's saying, I have made you to be salt to the world around you. Your purpose in this world is to be an influence. It's to to be a preservative against the corruption of sin on the human soul. It's to be a beacon of light and hope for those who have no hope. But if you lose your saltiness, If you lose what makes you distinctive by indulging in the same lifestyle and the same pattern of sin as the world around you, you have lost your purpose. And then notice what he closes with in the second half of verse 50. The instruction given to the disciples and ultimately given to us as well. Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Do you remember how this whole conversation started? The disciples were having an argument with each other about who is going to be greatest in the kingdom of God. And Jesus' point is this, you don't need to worry about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom. You have a call, an obligation, a duty, a charge, an opportunity right here and right now in this world to be salt and to be light to the world around you. So be filled with that salt and be at peace with one another. That because of the regenerative work that God does in our hearts, we can actually avoid the conflict that comes between brothers and sisters, which doesn't mean that we always agree on everything, and it doesn't mean that every Christian believes the same thing about every particular doctrine, but what it means is that there is a general sense of unity because we understand that our lives are not primarily about right here and right now, but about the eternal effects that our lives have. And so speaking to the disciples, Jesus says, all the conflict that you have with one another about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom, it is causing you to lose your salt. You're losing your effectiveness, your efficiency for the gospel. You are not having the effect on the world that you are called to have. Why? Because you have adopted a worldly system into Christianity. And when the corruption of worldly thinking creeps into the minds and the lives of Christians, we need to be reminded once again of the gospel, light, and salt. So here's the truth about this passage. If we're being honest with ourselves, passages like this can often be frightening. They can make us nervous. They certainly are uncomfortable. I can tell you, at least on my part, studying this week, was uncomfortable because passages like this force you to reckon with your own heart, with your motivations, with your own understanding. 
And lest we're tempted to think that the point of this passage is to buckle down and white-knuckle your way through your Christian life, we need to be reminded from whence our hope comes. And we find the parallel example of our hope of Mark 9 in 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That is the Father. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. That the same Jesus who warned about the brutality of a literal hell accomplished everything that we needed to be delivered from it. That Jesus Christ in his life was serious about sin. And that in the face of temptation, he leaned on his Father through the Holy Spirit to resist. That he suffered the accusations and the blasphemies of both the religious and the irreligious as they ran him through a show trial and tortured him. And when Jesus went to the cross, all of our sin was put onto his body. And as the sin of the world, your sin and mine, rested on Jesus Christ in that moment, the Father in his holiness, in his righteousness, in his perfection, had to look away from his own son. He had to turn his back on the one whom he loved the most. And in that moment, we hear the hellish cry from the mouth of Jesus himself. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And as we've talked about on numerous occasions before, as God laid our sins on Christ and punished them in him, Jesus himself experienced the essence of hell. Because what defines hell primarily is not all of these descriptions that we find in Scripture, though they are true and important, but what defines the essence of hell is the absence of the presence of God. And Jesus Christ on the cross experienced, in a very real sense, hell. And as Jesus turned his eyes to heaven, He did that so the sins, the sins of our eyes would not rest on us. As the nails were driven through his hands and his feet, he did that so that the penalty that belonged to us for the sins of our hand and our feet would not fall on us. He experienced the rejection of the Father so that you would never have to. And his death brought reconciliation with God and the power to kill sin in this life. See, this is the hope we have, both here and eternally. The hope that when Jesus cried out, it is finished. That all of the work necessary for your salvation and for mine was accomplished perfectly. Would you continue to trust and look to him Today. And if you don't know him, let this be the day 
where you look to him for the first time for the salvation that only he can bring. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you for the challenge of a heavy and hard passage. We thank you that with passages that challenge our presumptions and make us uncomfortable, you also provide us with the guarantee and the assurance of our salvation. So Lord, help us not to look to ourselves and help us not to help us not to despair. But God, help us to take honest inventory of our heart and life. To look to the conviction of the Holy Spirit in our heart as a demonstration, a guarantee of our identity as sons and daughters. And help us then through the light of the gospel to become salt, to live lives that are so unique and so different, not merely on the externals, but in what motivates us and what drives us, that the world around us must take note. And may all of that be done for your glory and your alone. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.